Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, your great book of Ephesians that you give us, um, there's nothing that we can do except for maybe muck it up a little bit, but you, oh God, through the Holy Spirit of God, you could accentuate these truths. And I'm convinced that during this week, you have been working out the curriculum of spiritual growth in each and every person's life. That here's this message so that what's said today, there's something that will strike a nerve, something that will spur us on, something to encourage us, and something maybe to correct us. But Lord God, we want to give you all the glory and everything. So bless your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, as follows. And I'll just read it out loud. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them you too, or we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Lord, would you speak to us through your word today and help us to handle it properly in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians Chapter 2, let me just remind you of some of the points we've already covered. I like review. Uh, Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and it stands rather unique in the New Testament. There's, there's kind of no other letter like it. Um, for instance, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, they all complement one another. And some would say that Galatians is kind of like a condensed version of Romans. It, 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 they complement each other. But when we come to Ephesians, we see Paul address the key points of the Christian faith in a unique format, but a format that is necessary for the audience to which it was intended. And as to the audience, we could look at Paul's experiences in Ephesus back in uh, Acts chapter 19 when he first goes to Ephesus, and you can read that for yourself at home. Tell us about um, how people got converted there. It tells about the school he established there. It talks about the years that he taught there. But it may not be best to try to look at the historical context of this letter in deciding how we're going to interpret it. I'll give you two reasons for that. First, in Ephesians, Paul dispenses with his typical greetings to individuals that you find in his other letters. His other letters, he talks about problems in their particular church, and, and he calls out people. He does it all the time. And also we found several, not me personally, but historians have found several early scrolls of the book of Ephesians, scrolls that leave out to the church at wherever, and they move on. And so one wonders if this was just this timeless letter that Paul gave out to his 
to his delivery men and just said, wherever you go, put the name of that church in there. It's for them. It, it applies to all Christians for all time, and it's meant for the church at large through every generation. So there's something in here for you and also for me. Okay, enough filler time babbling. Um, we've seen the work of the triune God in the life of the believer, chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. The work of God the Son, chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. The mystery of His will, chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. The work of the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And then Paul's magnificent prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, which, which ends in this crescendo of Christ raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And that was really introductory material, outlining all that we've covered and bringing us, that's going to be explained uh, more specifically in the next five chapters. But one long-dead commentator, John Mackay, says this, Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian religion. It is truth that sings doctrine that is set to music. And if I might play off that theme, and I'm the least musical person in the room, most people should know that. In melodic or musical terms, Ephesians 1 finishes on this high note in a major key, exalting Christ. He puts all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave, his, and gave him uh, as head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. And there, if we're in the spirit of the book, we're, we're the audience, this is where the audience should really erupt in this great hallelujah, praise, we jumping up and down. But then we enter chapter 2. And you look at chapter 2, and the opening verses take us immediately to a lower note, and if you will, a minor key. Because what Paul is now doing is he's going to show them, show us through this letter, that the immensity of the grace of God and salvation is made more significant when we recognize, when we're confronted by our own condition before we were saved. And what was that condition? Verse 2, he says in 1, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Well, that's rather blunt. Our condition, you were dead. Not disabled, not hindered, not challenged, not mostly dead, and certainly not pretty good, but you were dead. And here's a place where perhaps the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, would help clarify, yes, the Greek word translated dead here actually means dead. <laughs> it's just that simple. Dead or necros describes the condition of every human upon entry into this world. That's our spiritual state. We're dead. Now, to be true to the text, Paul is not telling us this for the sake of evangelism. This is not an evangelistic book. You can get someone saved out of it, but it's not a book like Romans that's meant to get people saved, or like John. He's talking to those who have been, past tense, who have been saved by the grace of God. And I pray that some who hear this message would be won over to Christ. I, anybody that preaches wants people saved, to be brought from death to life. But that's not what Paul is doing here. It's not evangelistic. He is expanding on the message that he gave us in chapter 1, our amazing position in Christ Jesus. And that causes us to wonder, Paul, 
why is it so important that we remember that we're crystal clear about where we come from? We'll hold that thought. We'll answer it later. And as I've said, the immensity of the grace of God and salvation is made even more significant when we recognize our condition before we were saved. Verse 2, or verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, why trespasses and sins? Is it just like the words balance out the thing, poetic? I suspect that because Paul is speaking to a Christian audience, he does not feel the need to take us back to imputed sin. You know, where it says, well, Adam sinned, so all of his offspring are also sinners. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's talking personally, he's talking about you and me and our actions. You were dead in your trespass in sin. He goes, now, he goes in depth on the imputed sin in the book of Romans. He covers this in depth. But here in Ephesians, he, he limits the issues to our own behavior, not our heredity. The fact is that each of us, before we met Christ, each of us had lifestyles which were deserving of eternal death. Each of us. The Bible calls that eternal death hell or eternal punishment. So here, Paul uses trespasses, or maybe your Bible says transgressions, and sins. Trespasses are breaking the rules. You see a law, you break it. You've trespassed. Sin is missing the mark and speaks of our failure to do perfectly in all that we do. So whether we weren't good enough or whether we intentionally did wrong, Either way, we have all proven by our behaviors that we were counted among those who were spiritually dead before we met Christ. And so the passage reads, verse 1 again, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And we, here we have the chief problem with evangelism. Again, this is not primarily an evangelistic book. You can leave babies here. It's all fine. They love babies. But still, in the issue of evangelism, the world's system refuses to call bad behaviors sin. The message is, hey, you're not really that bad. The world teaches that no one is responsible for their bad behaviors, and so they should not be held accountable for their bad behaviors. I was recently in a training class, and I'm a cop, you know, it's the way it goes. Uh, I was in a training class where they stated that more than 50% of police uses of force were against people with disabilities. Now, I've been a cop 35 years, and I have not been running around beating up disabled people. I know that to be true. It just doesn't, it seems way off the mark. So I, I asked, What's, where's that statistic come from? And they said, well, here's, here's the caveat. You see... Now we consider people who are under the influence of alcohol or people who use drugs to just be disabled. Oh, yeah, that probably changes a few things. We can't say sin. We can't give them responsibility. And the reason that this is so crucial is because a superficial view of a human condition results inevitably in attempts to fix that condition in similarly superficial fashions so that, for example, we may try if a man is simply misguided we might try uh, uh, to cure his predicament. We might increase his level of education. And if he's sick, we increase his amount of medication. And if he's rebellious, then perhaps by legislation or even by indoctrination or just simple domination. And the story of social and political history throughout the world, really this morning throughout all your cities and states and communities, 
uh, your sports teams, your businesses, your academic institutions try and do something about the fact that man is messed up. But we can't say it's sin. But the problem, God says, is that we were dead in our sins. And that's at the core of everything. Now, as far as the, uh, the world, you're familiar with the biblical usage of the concept world. Uh, it describes the culture that surrounds us. Probably the key verse is uh, 1 John 2.15. You don't have to look it up. You can if you want. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that which is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The world, you see it. The fact is, before we met Christ, we too used the ever-changing standards of the world to decide what is right and wrong for us. I'll live my truth. You live your truth. They all work together, right? Worse still, I don't have the words, but I'm going to decipher what I say. It's this exponential acceleration of continually redefining truth even our, in our own lifetime. It changes and changes and changes. It, it, it's, it, if you've been alive more than 10 years, you've seen it change 30 times probably. I can't be more specific without being graphic, so I won't do it, but I think you have an idea of what's going on. People can't even know basic truths anymore. Now, Paul wants us to know exactly what is going on. He says, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of obedience, disobedience. Among them, verse 3, we too formerly walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul wants we Christians to understand that the course of this world's culture is actually the result of a spiritual, subversive movement in a parallel spiritual plane, if you will. And when people who are by nature children of wrath follow the course of this world's culture, they are in fact, whether they know it or not, actually following Satan's plan whether they think they are or not. This is what's going on behind the scenes. My notes here with a, with a happy face uh, say reference the movie Inception, you know, red pill or, or blue pill, yeah, but I don't want to go there. Um, the bottom line, there's something going on behind the scenes. And again, it's probably not the best evangelistic approach for you to walk up to your coworker and tell them that they are by nature children of wrath, and they're walking according to the prince of the power of this world. And by the time Paul is closing out the letter in chapter 6, and God will get to that, he's going to tell us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The letter expands on this point later. And if I can just add, um, can we, we can be sometimes guilty of just kind of extolling the guy who got saved out of some super egregious sinful lifestyle and kind of diminish the salvation experience of the kid who was raised in church and met Jesus at three years or at eight years old. Well, don't do that. Your three-year-old didn't need anyone to teach them to be disobedient. You're, you're, uh, the self-willed is, is there. It's, it's no wonder that our first word is probably mama, and our second word following it is mine, right? Mine. 
all salvation experiences are exceptional. Exceptional. And maybe this is why Paul wants all of these believers, even those who were saved at a young age, to understand what we were saved out of. So we go to our second point, made alive by Christ. With that as a backdrop, we enter perhaps the two best words of the Bible. You were dead, but God. But God. I love it. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression and sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved for free. If you want a fun study, search but God in your Bible. It's more than one place. We were confronted in 2, 1 through 4 with the divine diagnosis of the spiritual condition of men and women outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw the diagnosis to be clear, to be comprehensive, that there is no exceptions, no excuses, and it's all also a, doc, a diagnosis that's manifestly grave. You were dead. So what's the cure? The cure, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive with Christ. Now, this is why it's such a wonderful thing that we, we have Bibles that we can take home and read, because we can learn this. These are great, great words. God speaks to us through the Bible. And because the Bible declares that we were spiritually dead on account of our trespasses and sins, and that only God is able to raise the dead, Paul goes on to say, and that, of course, is the good news because it's exactly what God has done. Beginning in verse 4, he's going to explain to us what God has done and then why he's done it. So three observations here, maybe two or three. First of all, God has made us alive in Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. Now, don't worry about verse 4, I'm going to come back to it. But for now, notice the, the, the little phrase, made us alive together with Christ. The testimony of believers is not that God has helped us feel better about ourselves or somehow or another has improved our circumstances when we became a Christian, better living conditions. Because the actual fact is, some of us, having professed faith in Christ, have found our circumstances have actually gotten worse. And in some ways, it's messed up the life that we had. So the idea that somehow or another Jesus comes in to simply add to the sum total of your happiness is completely unbiblical. We can't testify to that. We're not supposed to testify to that. The story of the believer is this, I was dead and Jesus made me alive. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And this is foolishness to the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person, uh, man by nature, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, are folly or foolishness to him, and he's not even able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Don't expect the world to understand this. And hence, you can't fault a guy that tells you that you and your faith are absolutely nuts. It makes sense to him that you're nuts. That's the assessment of the world. You people are nuts. In other words, when the Bible is proclaimed, when the gospel is proclaimed, it inevitably divides. It's a divisive book. In this world of, can't we all just get along and 
What's that word phrase that you? I don't know. It, yeah, it doesn't happen. It inevitably causes us to say, on which side do I find myself? In my mind, at enmity with God, am I hostile to these things? Do I naturally turn away from them? Do I believe this stuff? Well, if you're in Christ, just you do believe it. Because that's what God has done. He's raised us up. And prior to that, we were both deaf and we were dead until God called us to our senses. Observation two, we've been raised with Christ. Verse five, even when we were dead in our, transgress- in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Note that these are all past tense. Things God has done for you. Earlier, God chose us. Now God made us alive. We have God raising us in Christ. And I'll just add on my observation three here. God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is all in contrast to you were dead. And now you are alive in Christ. And hence, God's good news is really great news indeed. This is great stuff. And it's easy to see how we would want to turn this into a message of evangelism. Don't you want this for everybody, for your family and for your friends, for your husband and wife, your kids? And truly, I pray that God does turn on the spiritual light bulb and everyone hears this message. And yet, to uh, to understand their need, God must do that. He must rescue them from their dead condition. Still, to be true to the text... This is entirely aimed at the already believer. This information is for us who already believe. So Paul, why the big push? I mean, if I didn't know these things, they'd still be true, right? Yeah. See, I've read ahead. The book makes it pretty clear that these truths are being laid out for the benefit of Christians who find themselves drawn toward walking according to the counsel of this world. This is for those of us who maybe feed the lusts of our flesh in which we once lived. And those of us who maybe are indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Christians. You see, Where the natural man cannot grasp the things of God, you can. You can. And Paul seems to believe that a true and passionate understanding of what's going on around us, what we're saved out of, and where this world is going, and our position in Christ seated in the heavenly places, can be powerful in freeing us from pursuing ungodly pursuits. This is written to Christians. Now, this is not theology. This is survival. So who is this for? Who can relate to being drawn toward the things the world has to offer? Guilty is charged. Guilty is charged. 
Occasionally, you'll hear a church person say, well, well, I've been saved by grace. You can't judge my behaviors. (laughs) But Paul tells us, you were chosen for something better. You were made alive for something better. You were raised up for something better. And I think that something better is seen in verse 7. And it struck me as I was reading this that maybe verse 7 is the key verse to this passage. Listen, God doesn't save us so that we can check off the God box on our card. Rather, because of the great love He has for you, He wants to give you something better. Listen to verse 7. So that, He's done all these things, so that in the ages to come, He might show you the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. It just struck me, this is the key verse. All these things are so in the ages to come. And by the way, when did the ages to come start? Right now. He wants to show you something bigger and better on earth right now. Heaven doesn't start when you get there. Eternal life, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you might know me and the one who sent me. Eternal life starts now. So that in the ages to come, he might show you surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And it struck me that our problem, perhaps, is that Christianity just doesn't satisfy. Okay, I'm a Christian, so what? It doesn't thrill us. And don't fake it if it doesn't. It doesn't excite me. I'm not passionate about Christ. You see, the mistake is that we see salvation as God's chief end in God's goodness, but that's wrong. Salvation is but the precursor for the goodness of the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us throughout the ages to come. Salvation is the start of something bigger and more satisfying and better and more thrilling. We've yet to scratch the surface of what he has in store for those who love him. But our spiritually inconsistent behaviors are what hinder our relationship with Christ. The Martin Lloyd-Jones, another dead guy, gotta love the dead guys, offered us a following list of things that sap, that sap your energy for knowing Christ in an exciting way. This is a short list. I'll just read a few of them. This is him, not me. Don't blame me for this. Committing to too many spiritual works or things. Too much conversation. Arguments, debates, and wranglings. Laziness. Too much time in the wrong company too much foolish talk or joking, love of money or career, a desire for respectability and image, and unequal yoking with an unbeliever, ungodly entertainment, a wrong attitude toward or doubting the Word of God. Short list. So see if God is putting something on your heart that is a present distraction 
from pursuing intimacy with Jesus Christ, which is necessary if this Christian thing is going to be satisfying to you. It's going to thrill you. Now, it's common that whenever we offer a behavior list, there are those who want to check off the behaviors and the list to show that they're pretty good, and that's not the intent at all. So it's fitting that Paul ends the section in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No, none of us will be able to boast before God. Look why you picked me. No. Hey, God, I deserve to be saved. No, that's just not going to happen, folks. Oh, you vey. Rather, the text is clear that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, fully deserving of the wrath of God. But Jesus took our sin and its penalty upon himself and suffered the wrath of God in your place and my place. Hmm. And so, you know, it's entirely fitting that we would participate in communion this morning as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. If the servers want to come up and... uh, If something here has touched you, this was written for believers, not for unbelievers. If something here rings a bell, this would be the time to say, Jesus, I mean business. I want to talk to you about it, Lord. Taking communion doesn't mean that you're perfect or that you've got it all together, but it's an acknowledgement that I'm saved by his grace. It's what he's done for me. So we'll let them pass out the elements, and then we'll, uh, we'll take it all together as one, one body at one time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is for us. And as these folks join me in, in my prayer, I'll just tell you my thing, Lord. I, I've sinned since I've been a Christian. And I'm guilty that I haven't found Christianity to continually be thrilling and exciting and that which satisfies and and the world does have draws, Lord. And I admit that I'm the one that's been too involved in too much entertainment or in too much of this and that that would detract me from an exciting and stimulating relationship with you. Guilty as charged, Lord. And so you give us this practice, this, this cup and this bread and as a reminder, a continual reminder of what you have done for us because of our continual need for what you've done for us. And so we look at your words, Lord, in in Luke 22, where you say, uh, and you took the bread and you gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, you took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And so, Lord, in remembrance of you, for the body broken and the cup, your blood spilled, we take this in remembrance of you. As the worship team comes up, Lord, we, we thank you for your continued grace and for your desire to lavish upon us things in heavenly places. Help us not to be satisfied in the misery of this world, but to have a real sense of, of what you've lavished upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.